You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Millionaires Unveiled podcast, where we tell the stories and strategies of everyday millionaires and unveil their current portfolio allocations. This is Clark, here alongside my co-host, Jace, and this is episode number 80. Last week on the show, we had Rich. Rich currently serves in the military and lives in South Korea. He was able to build up a single-family investment portfolio of 20 rentals, all of which are paid off. So a terrific story with him and some great investment and life advice shared. A special thanks to our sponsor, Equity Multiple, for supporting today's episode. One of the tried and true paths to becoming and staying a millionaire is establishing passive income streams. Perhaps the most tried and true passive income channel for savvy investors is commercial real estate. Equity Multiple connects accredited investors with pre-vetted, exclusive commercial real estate investments with investment minimums as low as $10,000. With Equity Multiple, you can allocate a meaningful portion of your portfolio to professionally managed commercial real estate and create a stronger and more diversified portfolio. Head to equitymultiple.com forward slash millionaires to learn more. Again, that's equitymultiple.com forward slash millionaires. If you'd like to invest in our multifamily opportunities, feel free to reach out. Our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. We'll jump on a quick call with you to discuss any current opportunities and our strategy. We've been partnering with a couple groups that have a long track record of success and high returns. We have opportunities available now for both accredited and non-accredited investors in different locations and states throughout the country. If you'd like to be on the show as either a millionaire or as one to soon become a millionaire, send us an email again. That's millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. We'd love to unveil your allocation and story to help teach others about your investing mindset. We received a few emails this week in in which listeners shared their appreciation for those who have already told their stories. So we thank all of those who have taken the time to come on the podcast and share their stories. Today's interview features Dom. Dom grew up on welfare and now has a current net worth of $1.1 million. He has 50% of that in real estate, including in his primary residence, about 17% of his net worth in an S&P 500 index fund, and 22% of his net worth in equity in the private business for which he works for. So without further ado, let's get into today's episode with Dom. Dom, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and kind of what you're up to now? Yeah, um, I would say I'm the uh, quintessential rags for riches story. At least that's what I like to, to think. Um, grew up on welfare um, and today, you know, I'm, I'm 32. I hold a C-suite executive title, um, and have a net worth over a million dollars, which has mostly been accumulated over the last six years. You know, I, I defy the, uh, the, the people that say you can't get rich working for someone else. Cause that's exactly what I've been doing, uh, the past six years and what I plan to do for the next, uh, you know, probably uh, five to 10 years as well. Awesome. And what's your net worth today? It's about 1.1 million as we speak. And how is that broken up? Um, so I would say there's about 50% that's in real estate. Um, if you back out my primary residence, um, there's about 32% of that that's in prime, you know, in my primary residence, um, which we're working to, uh, to pay off by July of this year. Um, the other 17% ish is made up of, uh, exposure to commercial real estate and hard money lending through crowdfunding platforms, um, rich uncles and Pier Street. 
There's another 17% that's uh, made up of stocks. That's mostly low-fee S&P 500 index funds. Um, I do own a couple individual names like Coca-Cola and Dropbox, but um, I would say 98% of our um, investments there are, are in the S&P 500 index funds for, for the low-fee. Um, there's 22% in, in our private, in a private business I work for. Um, I have equity in, in the company I work for. Um, and that's an investment I only, you know, value once a year. I have 8% in life settlements. That's probably, uh, uh, new for, for a lot of listeners. Not a lot of people I know invest in life settlements. Um, and then 3% in cash and then 1%, uh, in our cars. And the reason I keep the cars in the network allocation bucket is I, it's a way for me to manage to make sure that we're not too overindulging. Um, in cars, you know, because there's an opportunity cost to that money. So, awesome. Let's let's break some of this down a little bit. So that the money or the net worth that you have invested in in public equities is any of that in retirement or tax tax protected accounts? Yeah, that's actually right now. There's it's it's 100 percent in uh, 401k slash IRAs. Okay. And has it always been kind of in that S&P index type funds or have you kind of messed around with, with different individual stocks over the last, I'll call it decade or so? I would say over the last decade, I was a lot uh, more active. You know, I, I thought I was uh, smarter than than I was and you know, I thought I was a stock picker, consistently underperformed uh, the S&P 500 um, and decided, you know, that it was just best for me to just invest in, in an index and then, you know, maybe if I wanted to put some play money aside, I could buy some individual names. And so I would probably say that transition happened, uh, I don't know, sometime around the, uh, the meltdown in the markets in 2008 and 2009, uh, when I finally started putting money back to work, it, it was all going into an index fund. Okay, cool. Now let's, let's get a little bit into, to the, uh, the life settlements. Kind of give our listeners an idea of what that is and kind of why you've chosen that as a bucket to invest in. Yes. Yeah, so life settlements are life insurance policies that are, are sold on the secondary market. And the reason the market exists is, you know, let's say, you know, you got an 80 year old male that, you know, had a policy on himself and the beneficiary was his, his wife who's since passed away. Um, he no longer needs the policy and he's gone back to the insurance company and said he wanted to surrender the policy, you know, and let's just, Theoretically, say it's a five million dollar payout. You know, when he passes away, um, they they offer him you know a hundred thousand dollars to uh, surrender the policy. But if he goes to the secondary market, um, he can get three to four times that amount from private investors. You know, the life insurance companies don't love that, but um, it is allowed. And I think there was some law that was passed in like 1911 or 1913 that made this possible. And uh, so you can buy fractional shares in that policy. And, and typically, when you're buying a life settlement, depending on you know the company you're working with. Um, you know, they're, they're going to do a couple actuarial uh, studies, you know, based, you know, to, to get the expected life of that person. And that's how they actually price the policy. And what I like about it, the reason I have a bucket, you know, for this to, to allocate capital to is I like one that it's not correlated to the, to, to the financial markets. Um, and two, I like it because you know what your, your return is the day you make your investment. So, you know, most of the policies I've invested in have a fixed return of anywhere from 45 to 75% over a four to seven year time frame, um, depending on the mortality table and the, you know, the expected life of the insured. So that's anywhere from what, like eight to 14% annually? Uh, I'd say 10 to 12. 10 to 12. Okay. And how does someone yeah, go about finding this? Oh, 
I, I did a lot of research on that. I mean, there's a lot of uh, companies that are out there. The company I chose was is Reliance Shares. They're based in California. And the reason I went with them is California is more regulated than any other state in the U.S. as far as uh, selling life settlements. And then I also chose them because of the filter they have. You know, they may review, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of face value, you know, life insurance policies, but only a small fraction actually make it through their investment funnel. Um, you know, they're typically looking for, you know, someone that's in their late 70s, early 80s that have uh, seven years or less of expected life. I know that sounds morbid, um, but it truly is a, a win-win for, you know, both the policyholder and the investors. You know, the policyholder gets a lot more money than what the insurance company was going to offer them. And the investors get, you know, once once that person passes away, get get a pretty decent return um, over over the uh, the lifespan of that particular policy. Sure, and then and I cut you off. You said historically ten per ten to twelve percent returns. No, so so mine are expected to to return about ten to twelve. In my research, um, you know, I, I I read that you know historically this asset class has has uh, delivered twelve to fourteen percent, um, and this is also an asset class where you know you talk about the uh, the Oracle Omaha, the uh, greatest investor of our time, uh, Warren Buffett. You know, he invests about four hundred million a year. In, into the life settlements uh, as an asset class. Awesome. So let's dive into your real estate holdings. W- what do you have there again? You had some in Pier Street and, and Jungles and what else? Yeah, so I have um, about $100,000 invested through Pier Street. Really, I, I like I it. It's a hard money lending for the retail investor um, with a lot less uh, capital concentration. You know, we did, my wife and I did some hard money loans um, before Pier Street came on the block and, you know, we were, you know, required to invest fifty to one hundred thousand dollars at a time, where this allows you to invest as little as one thousand dollars per property, and allows you, you know, kind of diversification across geography and across properties. So that's that's one place. Rich Uncles is another one. I'm specifically invested in their uh, NNN REIT, which is all commercial. Um, it's long-term leases, triple net. Um, you know, they don't use a whole lot of leverage. You know, I think. Today, it was a little bit less before. They used to only leverage up to 40% of the property. I think now they'll do 50%. Um, but I like, I like their risk mitigation first, uh, approach to choosing these properties and, and also the, the long-term nature. I mean, I think the average lease term on most of the properties in the, in the read is, is 10 years plus. Um, and then the, the, the only other place where I have some real estate exposure is really in our primary residence. You know, it's the concentration's high right now at about 32% of our um, net worth. And I expect that to probably jump up somewhere between 35 and 40% at its peak later this year. But once that's paid off, you know, we'll free up an additional hundred to $150,000 a year of capital to put to work in other investments. Awesome. So do you have any interest in, in buying properties on your own or a rental or multifamily, or you kind of just stick through hard money lending? Well, I mean, I, I definitely like hard money lending and I, and I like uh, the exposure I have to commercial real estate, but we, you know, we had a rental uh, by accident. You know, when we first graduated college, we had uh, purchased uh, a condo, and uh, we we saw the, the value of that condo. You know, go from two hundred fifty thousand down to, to ninety thousand, the debts of the Great Recession, uh, and we only had to hold it for twelve years before we could sell it and get our money back. I mean, with the amortization from uh, from the tenant, you know, we actually did end up making some money, and you know, some of the the tax uh, benefits early on. Um, that's, that's a long winded way to say we're, we are still interested in, uh, in, in physical real estate. It's just, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be a lot more intentional, um, with, with choosing to be landlords versus, you know, kind of becoming an accidental landlord. So we are looking to potentially, 
um, invest in physical real estate and, and or, you know, participate in syndicated deals. Haven't, haven't decided yet. I'm, I'm, I'm open-minded. So I don't know if that answers your question or if it brings more questions, but. No, no, no. I was just curious on, on how come. So what are people, what can people expect through Pier Street if that's something that they're not familiar with? What kind of returns are you getting there? I've, I've been investing, I've been an investor on the platform for actually two years coming up this next month and I've averaged about 7%. My criteria, I, I invest $2,000 per, per property. Um, and right, you know, when I started, I would accept anything with, uh, with an LTV of, of 75%, uh, or up to 75% and, and a minimum interest rate of 7%. As we've gotten further along in the, uh, the bull market, uh, I've actually gotten a bit tighter on my standards. So I'm, I'm now only investing or reinvesting as, as money becomes available and is paid back. With, uh, property, you know, LPVs up to 60% max and a interest rate minimum of, of at least 8%. I, I say that just to say that, you know, early on, I was expecting to see something lower than 7, 7% because, you know, I don't, you know, this, this asset class doesn't have a lot of historical information available as far as, you know, what to expect from, uh, from, from a long-term perspective and in, in investing, you know, through, through hard money. But, um, so far to date, the last two years, it's been about 7%. And I, I think, you know, if you look at my average over the portfolio, I would have expected about 7.5%. So there has been some, some dilution because of late, late payments and, and that kind of stuff. Nothing has actually defaulted and lost money. Um, but there are a number of properties that are either late or in the middle of a foreclosure proceeding. So Dom, let's just back up here, right? So at the beginning, you mentioned your net worth is, is around 1.1. You're 32 years old. How were you able to grow it so quickly? Quite honestly, it has nothing to do with uh, investment genius. It's, it's all been a, an extreme focus on growing the income income side of the equation. Um, you know, if you look at where our income was just a couple years ago, you know, we were earning about you know, and two, let's just back it up. I guess I, I said you know, over the last six years, we've grown most of our net worth. You know, the 1.1 million. We ended 2012 with a net worth of 42,000, and we were earning about 160. Five thousand dollars combined between my wife and I, and in 2018, you know, our net worth finished at about a million. Our our income was four hundred seventy-five thousand for 2018, and we're on track to uh, to earn about five hundred thousand in 2019. So it's really been an extreme focus on growing the income side of the equation, and then paired with a high savings rate. You know, we've kind of lived by this law of 50-50, whereby we spend 50% of our after-tax income and live on the remaining 50%, or sorry, <laughs> invest the uh, the remaining 50% guilt-free. So how have you been able to, to grow it? I mean, it's pretty remarkable, right? Almost, what, 300,000 growth in salary in six years. So have you, have you guys jumped around a lot? Or did you find a great opportunity? How have you done that? I wouldn't say I jumped around a lot. I mean, I'm going on uh, actually five years at my company right now, uh, next, next month. It was putting a lot of hours in uh, early on you know, working on both personal and professional development, trying to add as much value as possible, saying yes to, to every project and opportunity that came our way. Um, and, and I think willing to live our life like most wouldn't for a few years. So that way we could live, you know, the, the rest of our life like most probably will never have the option to. Um, you know, when, when our friends were out uh, at happy hour or going to Vegas, um, you know, we were, we were grinding it out, um, you know, working 70 to 80 hours a week, working on weekends. Um, if, if we didn't have work to do, for the uh, for the day job, you know, we were working to hone our skills um, to make make ourselves you know more valuable and and more marketable in, in the workplace. You know, either to be working with or 
you know, we did make a couple of strategic hops, but I wouldn't say we, uh, you know, overly hopped. I mean, I've been with, uh, what, three companies in the last 10 years. Um, one, the first one I was with, you know, for five years, and then I was with another one for a year and a half. And now I'm, you know, almost going on five years with the third company I've been with now. So. Awesome. Good for you guys. Good for you. So you mentioned at the beginning when you were breaking out your net worth, you had some equity in the business. Is is this a business that you started with somebody? Is is this some is this a company you went to work for and, and were given equity initially, or did you work for a little bit and then you were given equity? Uh, I worked for three years in in a private business that I did not start. Um, and over time, you know, as as I worked my way up the uh, the corporate ladder to the C suite, that was when I was first offered the opportunity to. Uh, to gain equity in the company. Yeah, you've got a great post on your, on your website about kind of the analysis that you went through in your options, whether you're going to take equity or, or, or the stock option route and you eventually chose the equity. Do you want to just maybe give our listeners a little insight into your mindset and to why you did that given the, you know, the concentration risk and everything else that, that you kind of go into on your, on your blog there? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a few things. I mean, from, if, if you go from a very high level, um, you know, there's, there's different ta- tax consequences between, you know, equity and, and options. Um, those that are unfamiliar, if you, if you have options in a, in a, in a company, uh, when you eventually have a liquidity event and cash those out, you're going to be taxed to ordinary income gains, uh, versus equity, you know, you're going to have, or, uh, you're going to have long-term capital gains. And so, you know, living in California where I live, um, you know, that differential is about 20% in taxes based on, you know, at the time where I saw our income going, um, you know, putting our marginal tax rate close, close to 50%. So I definitely favored the long-term, uh, capital gains for the equity side, but there was also other considerations. I mean, I was, I was new to the C-suite and we had just taken on a new private equity in- investor. I mean, one of the reasons I was able to get equity is, you know, we, we had just closed a, or we're in the process of closing a liquidity event with a, a previous uh, private equity investor. And bringing on a new a new partner was you know I, I saw this as an opportunity to show my commitment to the company by by writing a check. I mean it was the largest check I've ever had to write. I I wrote a check for one hundred and five thousand dollars to uh, to get my equity stake. But I also saw that as as a, as an opportunity to fast track my income even further over the next you know twelve to eighteen months, showing that level of commitment. Um, and it's definitely worked out in my favor. I mean I've. I went at the time when I took that equity position, I was making 175,000 a year. And this year, you know, all individually, I'll make 350,000. So I think on, on all fronts, it was, it was the right move to, to minimize taxes event for an eventual liquidity event, but also to show my commitment and, and also, you know, get, get a little extra juice on the income side. Um, as, as I proved my worth. Yeah, totally. So now that you've built up this this net worth and you've got a great income and you're super young, congratulations, by the way. Where do you kind of go from here with with your income, with your company, with your net worth, with your other goals? You know, in terms of investing and and growing your your wealth, where do you go from here? Well, so I mentioned earlier, you know, we are you know really focused on on paying off the house, um, and and the reason we want to do that is you know we we we've been trying to build a uh, a financial foundation where we can we can go after things with taking a bit more risk, but having a solid financial foundation, knowing that hey, look, our house is never going to be at risk. Uh, I know it's kind of you know uh, against the the, the norms and, and the personal finance community. You know, you can earn more in the market. Um, you know, why pay down a, a mortgage? I mean, it's become less desirable, at least for from from our situation with the tax tax law changes that Trump uh, put in place. You know, we we essentially have you know. 
no no uh, tax benefit from from owning a home with the uh, the likes of the salt you know ten thousand dollar a year maximum deduction and and the new twenty four thousand dollar for a married couple you know standard deduction. Um, so there's no real tax benefit for us to keep the mortgage in place. I mean the only the only benefit there is to to uh, you know have a little leverage, but we'd much rather just have that paid off and and then you know take on more risk at once once we've kind of put that risk to bed. Where else do we go? I mean, once we have that paid off, like I mentioned earlier, we're gonna have you know an additional you know hundred to hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year of capital that's freed up that we can put to work either in physical real estate or or more crowdfunded deals or syndications. Um, we'll definitely increase our allocation to stocks. You know, I'll probably finally start contributing to an after-tax account. Uh, you know, because like I mentioned, most you know all of our stock, you know, equities, uh, public equities investments are currently you know locked down behind uh, you know in a 401k or or IRA. The other thing is, I mean, we're going to continue to grow our income aggressively so we can we can free up more and more capital to to keep putting to work. I mean, I don't know. How familiar you guys are with my blog, but I have a pretty, uh, pretty ambitious goal to, uh, obtain a $10 million net worth by the time I'm 48. So, uh, still got a lot of work to do. I'm only 10% of the way there. No, that's great. And I was, I was kind of hoping that you would kind of share that with, with our listeners. Going back to, to the house, where, where are you in the economics of that? How much left do you have on the mortgage? And when do you kind of think that'll get paid off all the way? Yes. Yeah, so, um, right now we owe about $104,000 in the house and we will have that paid off by July or August of this year. So real soon. <laughs> yeah. Real soon. Yep. Five, less than five months or I guess about five months. So when you bought that house, was that kind of the plan that, Hey, at some point long before that mortgage is up, I'm going to have this paid off or was it more of the tax law incentive? Or, or de-incentivizing you to to keep a mortgage, I guess you could say that you've decided to pay that off. Yeah. So with I would say within within the first year we we bought in 2014, we devised our plan in in late 2014, early 2015 to pay off the mortgage. And, and at that time, we had set a goal for for seven years. So we had originally been targeting to pay it off in January of 2022. But you know, we we took a look at our income and we're like, look, you know, even if our income doesn't increase. From this point forward, over the next seven years, you know, we're going to earn it was something like 1.7 million gross. And so by paying off the mortgage, you know, we did the math is like, okay, only 30% of our gross would be going to paying off the mortgage. And I, you know, I know, I know people that are paying, you know, 50% of their gross towards just a regular mortgage that they could barely afford. And then as our income really, you know, went parabolic, uh, we, and, and, and as, as a kid, uh, came into the picture, we're like, well, why don't we just pay this off sooner? Cause, you know, we also wanted my wife to have, uh, the the option if she chose to to not work and you know not having a house payment makes that a, a bit more palpable and so that's where we kind of just really you know last year decided to go uh, all, all in and I think we paid like one hundred and thirty thousand dollars against the mortgage last year and then you know this year we've got the remaining I think we came into the year with about one hundred twenty five thousand that we needed to pay off so it's basically about twenty thousand a month yeah that's awesome and what is that what is that house gonna gonna be worth when it's all said and done. Right now, I'm carrying it uh, at about four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Okay, and we we purchased it for three seventy. So you gain gain a little bit of equity there in California, right? Right in the market, but hey, there's nothing like a paid off mortgage, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, I look at it as um, almost like a, a, a you know phantom passive income because to me, whether whether it's it's money coming out of your pocket or or money, you know, money not coming out of your pocket to me, it, it, there's there's really no difference. I mean, we're we're not going to have 
besides property taxes, we're going to have a very low expense. Even today, I mean, our, our mortgage is only 1250 a month. And so, you know, as a percentage of our income, it's, 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 it's almost negligible. <laughs> so Tom, you seem like a pretty smart guy, right? You've obviously been able to grow your, your income high. You, you've worked on yourself, your wife's working, you're on top of things. What have you done to, to learn and grow? Is it books? Is it talking to people? Is it paying for coaches? What are some of the things you've done to help develop yourself? I, I've become a, a, a very avid reader. I, I didn't like reading, uh, you know, growing up, but some somewhere uh, in, in college, I, I came across the uh, the Rich Dad Poor Dad uh, series, which kind of you know first exposed me to the whole financial I, this idea of financial independence or financial freedom. And then once I graduated college, I you know I, I kept reading you know, a couple books a year, but then it, the finding point was in 2012, I read a, a book, you know, The Slight Edge by Jeff Olson. And uh, it had this concept of of reading just 10 pages a day. And if you read 10 pages a day, you know, it essentially equated to 10 to 15 books a year, depending on the size of the book. And uh, I really, you know, ran with that. And, um, you know, I'm to the point now where I read 40 to 50 books a year. I can't get myself to to indulge in fiction. I feel like I got to be learning something. So, you know, all of my books, I would say 99% are uh, are nonfiction. Every once in a while, my wife does uh, get me to read a, a fiction book. But I'd say, you know, a lot of my learning and, and you know, the way I scratch my my itches that I have for, for knowledge is is buying books on Amazon. I mean, I probably spend, you know, a $1,000 to $2,000 a year on books. And how do you balance the time between learning, right, and taking the time to read and to research and understand things versus working on something that... that drives income how do you find that balance i don't know it's it's uh it's 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 tough sometimes i mean i i I definitely do try to put time aside to to you know act on what i'm learning but i think there's also something to be said sometimes i read broadly to to get an idea of of concepts that maybe i'm not ready to deploy now but you know in a couple years or you know if if i was looking at myself you know five years ago there were things I was reading back then that I exposed myself to that I, I didn't have the capital or I wasn't in a position to take advantage of some of the opportunities to, to really act on what I was learning. But I, I was exposed to it and I knew it existed. So, I mean, life settlements is a perfect example. I mean, it's something I read in a, in a, in a finance book. I can't remember which one, um, you know, five years ago. And I wasn't, I wasn't ready, uh, to make that kind of investment. I wasn't an accredited investor yet to be able to even get exposure to life settlements, but I knew they existed. So when, when I was finally, you know, eligible, so to speak, I just had to, you know, find a company that was suitable and uh, that, you know, met my risk parameters and, and make the investment. So, I mean, I think it, I think it depends on what you're reading and it depends on where you are in life. And I think it's, it's really comes down to, and then, you know, you hear your, your own uh, individual circumstances. Um, is it tough sometimes? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's sometimes I find myself probably reading reading too much and, and not acting enough. And then there's, you know, times where I swing the pendulum to the, to the other extreme where I'm taking massive action and I'm, you know, and, and I'm not reading that much. I don't know. That was, that was a long winded answer. I don't know. If no, no, no. I, I think, no, I think we it's asking, good. But. I think it's good. Cause I think it's something that I struggle with and probably others do too, is sometimes you feel like you're not really accomplishing if you're just reading, but when you're just working, you feel like you, you want more of that time to you know, grow personally in other areas or learn about a different topic. So I think it's it's tough sometimes to find that balance. So no, I would I would just add that I think you know for for every ten books that I read, I mean, if I if I find one idea that I think is worth you know a thousand bucks, I mean, to me that that's told totally worth it. Um, and I don't expect to get these massive ideas or you know massive things I need to act on from every book that I read. Um, and some of these books build on top of each other, right? I mean, you might you might feel like you're 
you're spending all this time reading, but you know, you, you read 10 or 20 books that really gave you a comprehensive and, and holistic, you know, view of whatever the topic was that really makes you feel educated and, and prepared to, to act on what you learned. Sure. Yeah. How many hours a week do you work and, and how many hours a week do you spend on your investments? So that looks a lot different today than it did five years ago, uh, or even, even a year and a half ago. Um, you know, I, I put in a long, long hours for, you know, the first 10 years of, of my career, um, working 70, 70 to, to 80 hours a week. There was definitely some weeks where there was 90 and 100 hour weeks put in. Today, I would say work wise, I'm, I'm more balanced at probably 50 to 60 hours. Um, I'm still trying to, uh, to edge that closer to 50. Uh, it's, it's tough when you're, uh, when you're in an executive level position. Um, and as far as how much time I spend on my investments, uh, I mean, I would say, maybe five hours a week. I mean, they, they, they tend to be pretty much on autopilot. I mean, like I said, our, our equities are mostly just being invested in S and P 500 index funds. There's not much to think about there. Um, when you go back to the, you know, exposure I have to real estate through those crowdfunding platforms I mentioned, those are all on auto investment as well. So there's not much to think there. I mean, I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big uh, proponent for, uh, for systems, you know, and set it and forget it. And I've also become a big uh, believer in illiquidity as, as a feature versus a risk because it keeps me disciplined because I have no other option. So I tend to like things that are that are illiquid and that I can set and forget. Yeah. So when you say 70, 60, 70 hours a week, are you talking, what, 10 to 12 hours a day, Monday through Saturday? Uh, yeah. It, it, you know, sometimes it bleeds into the weekends. It's not, you know, sometimes it could be a 50-hour work week with... Uh, you know, 10 hours a day on Saturday and Sunday, it just depends. Um, you know, sometimes it, you know, 15 hours a day for, you know, Monday through Friday. It, 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 there's, there's never really a, uh, I guess a set, a set schedule. I just sure. made myself available because I, I, in order to climb as fast as I did, I just said yes to everything. Yeah. So just coming full circle down here, you know, you mentioned at the beginning you grew up on welfare, right? And, and now you're 32 years old with a, a net worth of 1.1. 1. 1. So, it obviously didn't happen by mistake, but how did how did it happen? Where did you kind of get that initial hunch to to study this stuff and to work so hard and to learn about investments and to get to where you are today? Well, I would say, you know, growing up, I, I, I lived vicariously through people that were outside of my own circle of, of influence. And, you know, I saw what they had and I saw that there was an opportunity for, for a better life. And Somehow, you know, I can only connect the dots, you know, looking backwards now, but I intuitive, intuitively knew that I wanted, I wanted optionality and, and I found that money was the best tool to accomplish that optionality I wanted in life. I wanted, you know, I wanted to, to, to essentially buy my freedom to, you know, to, to buy the things I want if, if, if that's, you know, how I wanted to use the money or to just, you know, buy my time freedom to spend my time the way I wanted to. And, you know, um, Ideally, a combination of both. And I think, you know, my early, uh, exposure to, to the rich dad, poor dad kind of got the, the juices really going. Um, as far as, you know, the, the, the path to financial independence or financial freedom. And, and I think it really was the seed that was planted that got me to, to really start to, to read and expose myself to other options that were out there, other paths to, to, to building wealth. And now, you know, I've got kind of this snowball momentum. In terms of both, you know, this this big uh, ball of capital, as well as you know, a growing uh, knowledge base that is starting to look unstoppable. Yeah. Do your friends and and family know that you're this well off or about your net worth? Well, my my wife does, right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, I, I I you know I, I 
I, although I am transparent, I wouldn't say all friends and family. It's it's select people that uh, you know if they show an interest and in, I mean they everyone kind of knows that I'm I'm good with money. They don't know, you know necessarily what what my numbers are, but you know over time if if someone shows an interest, you know I, I become a bit more transparent um, as as a relationship develops and if they you know want to get their own kind of financial house in order. But I wouldn't say no. I mean, I, not 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 every single person in my life knows where we are financially. Sure. So just before we wrap up here, I want to ask some rapid fire questions. So most expensive jeans or, or pair of pants you've ever purchased? Mm, probably like $120 for a pair of jeans. Okay. Most expensive shoes? Uh, I'm not I'm not a big spender on clothes. Maybe, I would say maybe 120 bucks as well. Okay. What about most expensive car? Uh, well, we we did just buy a uh, Suburban for, for $65,000 and that still hurts. <laughs> that's actually uh one thing we did decide to uh to finance because i didn't want the uh the concentration and net worth on that okay most expensive meal out that you've paid for it was a fourteen hundred dollar uh dinner okay uh what item or items or experiences are worth spending more money on to you food and travel okay if you can remember your high school and college gpa if you went to college yeah um high school gpa was 3.8 and college GPA was 3.67. Okay. How much do you spend a year household spending? Around 120000 a year. Okay. And of all the books you've read or websites or blogs you read, what, what stood out to you? Are there any that have really tipped the needle? Or Yeah, I think there's there's three that come to mind. Um, I mentioned one earlier, The Slight Edge. That's been a, a transformational book for me, probably the most influential book I've ever read. It's it's simple in concept, but it's it's powerful in practice. Uh, a book that I actually read in the last uh, 12 months was uh, Wealth by Virtue. And it was actually someone that reached out to me because of the blog. And it's actually one of the best personal finance books um, I've read maybe ever. Very comprehensive. It's very easy to read. It's very approachable. And then the, the third book that really comes to mind um, is The, the Simple Path uh, to Wealth. Awesome. Dom, just to wrap up, what mistakes have you made over the course of, of your career or investing? And and kind of pair that with maybe any advice that you'd give to, to somebody just starting out in their career or, or investing in general. I think there's there's two mistakes that really um, flash uh, in front of me when you ask that question. And one of them was I, I kept I was way too conservative and, and kept way too much money on the sidelines. You know, as as the market started to recover in uh, in 2009 and, and through probably to 2015, I was probably only ever 50% invested. I also thought I was, uh, like I mentioned earlier, um, a little too cute that I could time time the market. And I was always uh, feeling that the, the market was <laughs> was going to crash. But I realized that you know, trying to time the market is like catching a falling knife. And eventually, just started to, to put capital to work. You know, kind of dollar cost averaging and you know letting letting the market do what it does. And that's that's the first one is is really just being too conservative and, and too much leaving too much cash on the sidelines. The, the second one actually happened before the financial crash, and uh, I was I was 19 when I bought my first uh, investment property. Um, this is not has nothing to do with the condo I mentioned earlier. I, I, I went in with a guy that my my brother introduced me to. He was supposedly a uh, a sophisticated investor. I was his uh, his credit partner. I, I put that in air quotes because you guys can't see what I'm what I'm doing. Um, and long story short, you know, the guy was over leveraging. He was falsifying documents. Luckily, I wasn't in on it. I, I did get deposed by the uh, assistant attorney general 
I think that's what the title was. And anyway, this guy, you know, they were looking for him for fraud and the, the, that house went to foreclosure. He wasn't paying the, uh, the mortgage and he, he was trying to refinance just to pull money out and move from, you know, from one house to the next. So being naive and not doing my due diligence. So if I give any advice to, uh, to someone today, I would say, you know, do your due diligence. And if it sounds too good to be true, it usually is. So just walk the other way. I think there's two other things I would say to, to your listeners is one, you know, I, I believe that the surest and quickest path to financial independence is a, is a high income paired with a high savings rate. Um, and I would say, you know, learn to live by the law of 50-50. I screwed that up earlier when I when you asked me another question. Um, what the law of 50-50 is, is to invest 50% of your after-tax income and spend the remaining 50% guilt-free. Um, it, it's a very balanced uh, law, and it's something that's been very beneficial for my wife and I. And we've actually gotten to a point where we've grown our income faster than our desire to spend. And so now our, our savings rate, for example, this year is on pace to, you know, to be north of 60% and it was close to 57% last year. And the last piece I would say is match your 401k out now. It only gets harder with age and responsibility. That's awesome. And where can people find you or get a hold of you? I think the best place is on the blog, you know, genyfinanceguy.com. You can also send me an email. It's dom at genyfinanceguy.com. I'm not very active on social media. Um, most of the posts that go there are automated. Um, I'm trying to guard my time a lot more these days with uh, with a new family and just trying to, uh, to have a bit more work-life balance. Yeah. Real quick, just kind of a follow-up question from some of our listeners. How often do you discuss things related to your financial situation with your wife and, and maybe talk a little bit about what that was like in your courtship and, and engagement in terms of getting on the same page and, and having some similar goals? Yeah, well, so my wife and I have been together for 14 years, married about seven of those. And I would say early on while we were, you know, we were, we were still in college and then after college, you know, living together, um, we kept things separate. So, you know, we were both natural savers, but we didn't really talk much about finances because we weren't, we hadn't combined them yet. We didn't actually combine them until we got married in 2012. And then, you know, things were fine. We just kind of saved. We didn't have any rules. We didn't really necessarily have any goals. We were both just trying to uh, hustle and, and move up the ladder in our, you know, in our careers. Um, and it wasn't until 2014, actually, it happened to be around the time I started the blog where I started to formalize, you know, some of the, some of the rules, that, you know, in which that, which, you know, that guide our, guide our financial lives, um, you know, like the rule of, or the law of 5050 that I mentioned. And I would say that that actually caused a bit of uh, a bit of uh, conflict between my wife and I because before before that you know that law was kind of put in place in, in our financial lives you know every month we would talk about you know how much we saved and you know versus how much we earned and you know she'd ask me are you uh, are you happy with that and you know I go yeah I know it's good but you know I, I'd like to save more and she wanted a concrete number like how much do you want to save and she was always frustrated because you know she felt like I was uh, putting every every expense under the the magnifying glass but when we finally settled on this and on this you know law 5050 uh things have been pretty blissful um from a financial perspective not only has our income taken off but you know we we don't really spend much time thinking about the money that we spend because we we spend far less than we than we bring in on a monthly basis or even on an annual basis that's awesome thanks for sharing that Gen Y finance guy with a net worth of just over 1 million dollars thanks for coming on the show today Hey, thanks for having me. It was fun. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. 
For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.